0: I want to tell you in advance before I start this that I'm going to start uh, a little introduction, then we'll get into chapter 1. The introduction is probably going to be rather confusing. And if it seems kind of strange, I will tie this in by chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. So bear with me on this, but I'm doing this for a particular reason. We're starting out with Genesis 1.1, all right? There is a God he did create and this is going to be revealed to you, but I'm gonna it's gonna start in kind of an odd way. So just bear with me, be patient, and I hope that by the end of this sermon that it will be tied in. Now I need to get something before I get started. So give me one second here. It's my son with all the funny colored hair here. Uh. For those of you who aren't normally here, these are my hold down the paper when it's really windy rocks. So I'm, I'm gonna need these today. <clears throat> and if we get thrown way off because of a page getting blown, I'm very sorry about that. But uh, we'll go ahead and get started here. Today's talk is as much about clear thinking as it is about anything else. We all have things that we think clearly on and things that we don't think clearly on. Some people think clearly on politics. Now, whether you like Rush Limbaugh or not, he is very insightful into the state of American politics. My dad, he's a huge sports fan, and he can analyze a football play and see everything that happens in it when I don't even know where the football went, and that's the honest truth. When I was younger, my mom got a book about football, something like Football for Dummies, so that she could think more clearly on what was happening during a game. And I can tell you, I never read that book some people can analyze numbers in great detail and they can make equations right in their own head they can think clearly on mathematics as a matter of fact benjamin franklin in order to relax used to do long mathematical calculations if he was waiting in a government office to buy something or whatever he'd sit there and do mathematical calculations and they're astonishingly complex complex but that's what he did and he could think clearly on mathematics Every discipline then takes time and it takes mental effort and we normally only think clearly on the things that we are used to or the things that we are concerned about. But we often don't give much clarity of thinking to uh, things that don't interest us. For example, a lot of people couldn't care diddly about the issue of abortion. Most people have never really thought the issue through but they simply nod their support in whatever is surface deep or what is emotionally satisfying on this troubling issue. But when looked at this particular issue in its proper light, the issue of abortion becomes painfully clear. But we may not want to face such clarity in an issue like that, simply because it challenges us morally. And who wants to face the possibility of having killed or taking the life of another human being? And so we don't think it through. And even greater than the issue of abortion is the ultimate issue. What is God like? What is his nature? If we can determine this, then every other thing, everything in our life becomes subservient. And this is a far more important issue in the eternal scheme of things. So today, I am hoping that all of you will leave here thinking a little bit more clearly on the God of creation. Now, if any of you have ever seen those uh, 3D picture magic books that they used to have, they got a lot of lines of, they just seemingly ra- ra- random lines. And if you look at those particular lines, eventually, if you think clearly, you will see a picture actually jump out at you. Maybe a, a dolphin jumping and you can see him almost coming at you. And then once you've seen that image, you can no longer not see it it's as evident as say the smile of a child with an ice cream cone you simply can't miss it but until you see it it's as hidden from you as the back side of the sun you can look all day and i was never good at them i think i saw one out of an entire book of 50 pictures so this is the way that it works if you can't see it it's hidden from you but as i said after today i hope that you will see just a little more clearly about god and that in the future you will take real mental effort to think through what I'm going to give you today, because it does take mental effort. If you're old enough, you may remember the song by the Moody Blues called In the Beginning. It started out with these words, I think, I think I am, therefore I am, I think. And another voice comes on and he says, of course you are my bright little star. I've miles and miles of files, pretty files on your forefathers fruit. And now to suit our great computer, your magnetic ink. And then he comes back and he says, I'm more than that. I know I am, at least I think I must be. And this particular song, the words of it, the first words, I think, therefore I am, actually come from what is known as the Cartesian conclusion. It's from a man named René Descartes. He was a 17th century French philosopher who went on a journey of doubting everything. He asked himself, what can I know is real? Can I really touch this? Can I really see anything? Can I hear anything? Can I be absolutely certain about anything? And the reason why he did this is because people were challenging him on it, saying, well, you can't know reality. And you hear that a lot more in in, uh, colleges and seminaries today. You really can't know reality. And he really almost went insane, trying to think, how can I know if this really is And so what he finally did is he locked himself into a closet and he determined, I am not coming out of this closet until I can come to some sense of reality. And finally, in a moment of intuition, these words came to his head. Kagato ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. If you can think, then you must exist. And so from finding certainty in this simple but really profound statement, Descartes built an entire system of philosophy based on that one word. It started from the mental knowledge of self. I know that I exist. And from there, he went to what's called an ideological argument for God and a causal argument for God. In other words, I exist, therefore there must be something that I came from. That's my idea about God. And then that idea about God formed into an idea that God caused me. And from that idea in his head, he found the necessity for a material substance to support the things in the world around us, all right? The reason why is because he said that if in fact there is this God that created me with this conscience, then he would be a deceiver if these things didn't actually exist. And it was a brilliant insight on his part. But in essence, this man Descartes went from I am, to God is, to this is. And that's where a system of philosophy built up on that. Now, people have found faults in some of his philosophical statements. But in the end, he is right on target that we can think these things through logically and we can know what we are thinking. Because we are sitting right here on solid ground, there is a logical sequence of events and thoughts by which we can deduce and by which necessity must be true about how we got here. And this is, I want you to know in advance, in case you're not all Christians, this is not a Christian idea and it is not a Jewish idea, but it is a universal knowledge that is available to all people. The problem with it is, though, that it takes thought and it takes consideration to realize what is otherwise amazingly evident. It is very, very mentally challenging to go beyond the words, I wonder how I got here and so people most people will never stop and actually think that process through but when someone comes to the realization that we are in fact here and then thinks this process through logically which we will try to do today there are normally one of two reactions in the person that comes to this conclusion the first is awe and a desire to know more or the second is denial and a desire to suppress the truth in essence, we say to God, either you are what I strive to be, or you are what I strive to flee. Now, I'm gonna give you these reasonings, and some of them you will probably grasp very quickly, all right, but some of them may seem as foreign to you as Arnold Schwarzenegger's accent. I mean, it's, it, some of them will seem that way. But if you take time to ponder them, and if you listen to these, you say, I wanna think these through clearly, I, ask me, I will email them to you so that you can think them through and you will come to great conclusions about the God of the Bible. All right. You will also be able to clearly determine, clearly, that no other God that is presented in all of human history meets the requirements that I'm going to give you. They are called the first principles and there are 12 of them. Now, before I give you these 12 principles, I want you to know that these are something that we should all know. But like most people, I had never even thought of them until I went to college. And then I had a headache every night for years. And the people in my classes know that I still go to bed at night and I think on these almost every night because they are so important. But I was talking to Rhoda, wherever she is. Where are you, Rhoda? She's here somewhere. Anyway, I was talking to Rhoda just a little while ago about the nature of God. And I brought up the first principles and she said, what's that? And so I brought them out and we started going through these 12 principles. And after about the fourth one, she says, oh, I already know these. My parents taught me these. So the the question for all of us is, is if a young girl from Nazareth in Israel can learn these principles and can comprehend them, then we here have no excuse for not thinking them through clearly. All right. Concerning these 12 principles, understand first that God is the author of reason. And so nothing unreasonable will ever ever come from him, nothing unreasonable will ever describe him. As Dr. Norman Geisler says, he created us to be like himself. So the basic principles of reason are not arbitrarily imposed on God, rather they come from God. God is rational and humans are made in his image. So using logic is not opposed to revelation, It is a part of it. And as Isaiah says in his first chapter of his book, come and let us reason together, says the Lord. We did not invent these principles. We merely discovered them. The first is being is. That is the principle of existence. Being is. The second one is being is being. That's called the principle of identity. The third one is being is not non-being and that's called the principle of non-contradiction. Now, these first three are also considered the highest laws of logic, all right? In other words, these are things that go all the way back to Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. These are, these are ideas that are by themselves obvious. A is A. A is not B. A is not not A, okay? Those are logical laws. The third one that I just gave you is called the principle of non-contradiction. And that one was said by the 13th century philosopher and theologian, his name was St. Thomas Aquinas. He said that the law of non-contradiction is the highest law of logic, even though it comes in third place in the order of logical laws. Once again, don't be confused by these things. The fourth one here is called The principle of the excluded middle, either being or non-being. Now that may sound silly to you, but there are people that say, well, this is, it's not gold and it's not not gold. And so we have to come up with a law of logic to refute idiots like that. Either it is gold or it is not gold. And there's nothing in between either gold or not gold. Okay. The fifth one is non-being cannot cause being. Charlie Garrett is a being. I exist. Something that doesn't exist cannot create me. Sounds obvious on itself, but people will dispute this, okay? That is called the principle of causality. Non-being cannot cause being. The sixth one is a very important one to me personally. Contingent being cannot cause contingent being. A contingent being is a being that was Created. It is something that could not exist. In other words, Charlie Garrett could not exist. My mother could have just not had me. The universe could not exist. It is what's called a contingent being. It doesn't have to exist. The part of this particular principle to me that's very important is that I started out in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ is a created being. A created being cannot cause another created being. A contingent being cannot cause a contingent being. If you think it through, and I'll explain this in a minute, it becomes self-evident. Number seven, only a necessary being can cause a contingent being. This is called the positive principle of modality. In other words, if I am contingent, then something created me. It is not contingent. Therefore, this being must be necessary it must exist in other words it cannot not exist and this is all going to start coming together believe me by about the third point today we're only we haven't even got to the first point number eight necessary being cannot cause a necessary being this is the negative principle of modality if this being is necessary it must exist and it creates something else, then this could not have existed. It can't be a necessary being. This being would have something that this being doesn't have, and that means that this being is not necessary. Once again, it'll start coming into place here shortly. The ninth principle is every contingent being, like Charlie Garrett or like this stand here, every contingent being is caused by a necessary being. It's kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about that is the principle of existential causality in other words the universe exists charlie garrett exists anything that is not necessary had to have come from something that was necessary it's obvious if you think through it. but anyway here we go number 10 necessary being exists that is the principle of existential necessity this one you have to ask well why is that Why does a necessary being have to exist? The next one explains it. Contingent being exists. I am contingent. I couldn't have created myself. I didn't just pop into existence. And another contingent being didn't create me. Therefore, a necessary being must have created me. All right. The next one is number 12. This last one is, to me, the most important for what we're going to talk about today. Because it finally solidifies something that we will get to in our last point. This is necessary being is similar to the beings it causes. That is the principle of analogy, all right? Now, I want to explain to each of you that I've given you these things. They may not make any sense at this point, but these principles are undeniable or they are reducible to what is undeniable, all right? In other words, any attempt to disprove them will actually prove them. I'm gonna give you the first one so that you can understand what I'm saying here. The first principle is the principle of being. Being is, all right? To doubt one's own existence is self-defeating. And it's honestly stupid, by the way, too. The principle of existence says that in order to deny existence, one must exist. So if I say, well, I don't exist, then I had to say that I exist in order to do that. All 12 of these principles do that. They are either undeniable in and of themselves or they are reducible to what is undeniable. And what that means is you may need number 11 to support number 12 or number 10 to support number 11 because we are here and by default means that number 10 is here. But they are all undeniable. And when you attempt to deny them, you show your own stupidity. So that's why I say think these through. If you'd like a copy of them, I'll email them to you hang them up above your bed and think on them. You will find out that the God of the Bible is immensely, immensely wonderful based on these 12 principles. If we exist, then we came from somewhere. That's all there is to it. Today, we will talk about the one who brought us into existence. The psalmist said these words, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. So. I hope that in the future, you guys, when you go to bed, will think on the Lord through the watches of the night because this is what I do every single night. If you know me and I get a a biblical problem that I can't resolve, Janice here gives them to me all the time. I go to bed and I can't sleep. They followed me home one night after Bible study and I'm weaving down the road, pulling out my concordance to try to figure something out that she had just given me. This is what troubles me and I hope that these things will trouble you because this is what allows us to know our creator more intimately. Here's our text verse for tonight. Bereshit bara Elohim et haShemaim veet haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So may God speak to us through His word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised. Our point number one for today is the God of creation. Aristotle said these words: as if the now had remained the same, time would not have existed. By the time we get done tonight, you're gonna see how brilliant that comment really is. Imagine an artist that is getting ready to paint a painting. Now I'm gonna use this analogy for all of our points tonight, but at point number one, the God of creation, it is already lacking a good comparison. The God of creation is the one who created time, space and matter. And so none of these existed before he created them and they are products of his infinite wisdom and power. But for a back of a, lack of a better analogy, we'll, use, we'll assume that the paint, the canvas, and the easel aren't real, okay? Instead, the white silky canvas is going to resemble the nothingness before creation, which will come to be something. Another point, we think sequentially. We go from one thing to another with our thoughts. God does not do this. All right, he knows everything immediately and he knows everything intuitively. So when I say he thought X and then he thought Y, he did not think in that manner at all. There is no change in God. And we can know this without the Bible. We do not need the Bible to understand this, but the Bible does bear it out in several verses. For example, I, the Lord your God, do not change from the book of Malachi. So to understand the God of creation we need to know what he is like the bible says god is spirit and we can actually know this believe it or not without the bible before einstein presented the theory of relativity monotheistic thinking meaning the belief in one god had already believed in a beginning the bible says it i believe it but boy i'd sure like to be able to prove it to other people All right, so very intelligent minds developed ways of proving that time did not always exist. They first needed to determine if the universe really had a beginning, okay? And this can be demonstrated in several ways. Some are more philosophical than others and some are more scientific. One simple way to look at time is if it always existed, is if time always existed, there would be no present we would not be right we would not be here right now on at turtle beach if time always existed and i'm going to explain this to you so don't don't get ahead of me this can be represented by an infinite line of books all right if the line of books has no beginning then you are never getting to the last book you never start and so you can never get to the point where you're at. In other words, we are at a point right now and we are moving forward in time, therefore time had to have had a beginning. And I'm gonna help you understand this with another example. Suppose that line of books is red and then black and then red and then black and it goes on infinitely in both directions. If you take out all of the red books, you have not decreased the number in the line by even one because it's an infinite series. And yet, you have an infinitely large pile of red books over here, which is taking up all of the space in the universe. If you can grasp that, that tells you that we could not be right here, right now, at Turtle Beach enjoying this nice afternoon if time always existed. That's the philosophical argument. The second one is very similar to it, but it deals with the second law of thermodynamics and usable energy. Both of these come to exactly the same conclusion and there is no way around these arguments. There was a beginning to time. Now, I don't know, does anybody wanna hear the second law of thermodynamics? Does that interest you at all? Okay, it'll take about one minute to explain this. Energy in a closed system is winding down, okay? That's what the second law of thermodynamics says. You have these laws of thermodynamics, they're immutable, they can't be changed, just like the laws of logic. If energy in a closed system is winding down and nobody on earth, nobody disputes that the universe is a closed system, okay? That's a universal axiom that the universe is like a bubble. If energy in this closed system was winding down and there was never a beginning to time, then we would have no energy an infinite time ago. So yes, there was a beginning to time, all right? In addition to these concepts of thermodynamics and the philosophical reasonings comes in 1920, a guy named Albert Einstein. And he develops what is called the general theory of relativity. And he proved once and forever that time, space, and matter are all co-equal and they're all co-dependent on each other. Meaning they all occurred at exactly the same moment. You cannot have time without space. You can't have space without time and matter. You can't have matter without space and time. They're co-dependent on each other. From understanding this, that there really was a beginning to time, we can use what is called the Kalam argument. It's an Arabic argument which states that if something had a beginning, it had a, anybody? A beginner, all right? It had a cause. As the universe, in fact, did have a beginning, it must have had a cause. And there is, once again, the same as time, there cannot be an infinite series of causes or what's called an infinite regress. And therefore it must have had an uncaused cause or a necessary being that takes us right back to the first principles the principle of existential necessity do you see why these principles are starting to come important and they will all come into place here very shortly however this still does not explain why god is spirit as the bible says god is spirit the reason for this is if the universe had a beginning meaning time space and matter then these things did not exist before they existed. Therefore, whatever existed before those things, time, space, and matter, had no parts. No parts, okay? It means that the creator is pure actuality. It's a big term. Think of it this way. Potential, we all know what potential is. I have potential to grow a beard. My beard has potential to turn gray. This has potential to rust. The paper has potential to burn or to be torn. The tree has potential to grow. Potential means change. Anything that can change in any way, time taking forward is potential. Anything with potential is change. But whatever came before time, space, and matter has no potential and therefore it is pure actuality. I hope you understand that now. Therefore, he, this God, whatever he is at this point, simply is. There's no change in him. He simply is. And guess what? The Bible bears this out. Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. This reasoning then, if properly understood, immediately eliminates all other religious expressions but one. Monotheism. You are left with one God. But in order to help you understand why we're left with one God, I'm gonna go through some of the religious systems of the world and how you can know based on relativity, based on thermodynamics and the philosophical reasonings, why they are wrong. The first one we're gonna address is polytheism. I'm not addressing individual religions. Hinduism is a polytheistic religion, 300 million gods. Polytheism simply means there are many gods. It could be a a religion with three gods or a religion with 3,000 gods, whatever polytheism means many gods in order to differ as one god from another say there's just two gods in order for them to differ a being would have to lack something found in the other being if you understand that this one is not this one and therefore they have something that the other doesn't have if this is the case then this entity and this entity would not be unlimited and it would not be perfect they would be lacking something if one is lacking something that the other is lacking, then that implies change. Change implies time, and time only exists with space and matter. Okay, Einstein, back to relativity. Remember the nothingness of the silky white canvas that we're getting ready to paint? This ain't it. Polytheism is wrong. Further, as previously stated, such limited beings, this being and this being, would be contingent, and contingent beings cannot cause another contingent being nor can they be caused by another contingent being therefore anything that comes to be must have been caused by a necessary being that is the principle of contingency back to the first principles polytheism is incorrect we have another possibility pantheism all is god everybody here seen the new age movement out there oh i got christ in me boy i'm i got the divine spark that tree is god everything is god This is what they believe. This is uh, Buddhism. I lived in a Buddhist country for six years. They believe that everything is God, okay? It denies the reality of limited and finite beings. However, look at Charlie. It's painfully evident that change occurs right here. If change is occurring in me, any real change occurring in me means that I am separate and I am distinct from God because God is unchanging, We know that without the Bible. We do not need the Bible to come to these conclusions. I am changing. My mom is changing. That tree is changing. The sand under my feet just changed when I kick it. All right? That is pantheism's downfall. The very nature, though, of pantheism, all is God, is self-refuting. In other words, it's like a, a circle of stupidity, basically. Here's why. If this is true, if pantheism is true, they say that that, uh, uh, what's the word, individuality is merely an illusion of our mind. I mentioned that a moment ago. If this is true, then pantheism must be false because there could be no mind to explain the illusion. It is, as I said, a self-defeating system. This is the kind of thing that Rene Descartes was trying to get away from, because where people were saying, oh, it's all an illusion, and this is all, they had this pantheistic model in their head. And so he locked himself in his closet, and he came to the realization, "Cogito, ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. It is impossible that this can be a viable system based on relativity, based on thermodynamics, etc., Because pantheism believes that everything is God, this would also imply that everything also existed. Like before, this is an impossible because the nothingness of the silky white canvas is violated by the somethingness of the ever-present universe. Something implies matter, and matter implies both space and time. And this is not an acceptable nothingness especially when something is not nothing right pantheism is incorrect we have another possibility though this is panentheism and most people have never heard of this one but pan all and in theos god so you have all is in god it holds that god is in the universe like a mind is in a body however we've already seen that god is pure actuality He doesn't change, and he is absolutely simple. Being pure actuality, he has no potential. He doesn't change. Panentheism looks at God as changing or having potential, and he is finite. He is a director of the universe rather than the creator, and this would mean that God changes essentially to us. Instead, any change between God and man is relational. It is not essential. Here's an example. This is God. We'll say this is God. It's not God, okay? But we'll say this is God. I am a panentheist. God is changing relationally to me. He's directing the universe. Rather, I change in relation to God. He is the unchanged being. I am the one that changes in relation to him. So there is no essential change between God and his creation, in panentheism, there is a confusion between the world process and God, all right? Also, because it says all is in God, the pretty silky white canvas that we are supposed to start with is already filled with the creation that isn't supposed to exist. Time, space, and matter all clutter it up, okay? Regardless of the form it takes, panentheism is incorrect in the end we are left with inescapable facts i'm losing my paper here god exists he is eternal he is one and he is spirit those are things we don't even need the bible to figure out we can know that without the bible monotheism and this is the monotheistic god who is prior to his creation he is not a part of his creation As it says in the Bible, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. From the book of Isaiah. And again, Isaiah says, have you not known? I read you this earlier. Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. That's the God of creation. Point number two today is the God above creation. Now that we've had a really, and I mean a really small taste of the God of creation, we want to look at the God who is above creation. And a lot of this point is going to be tied up in the first point, but I have separated them so that we can see the nature of creation in relation to the creator. In the beginning, God. That's all there was before there was a beginning. There wasn't time, there wasn't space, and there wasn't matter because he created these things. He is separate and distinct from these things. Even now, while we are enjoying them, he is not a part of this creation in the sense that he does not change in relation to the change that is going on around us. God is above his creation. Now, we wanna ask the question, and I hear it all the time, how long has God existed? And that by itself is a category mistake. God is eternal, but he is not eternal in the sense of a, a clock ticking seconds where we can count it. He is not eternal like watching the sun go over the head and moving on in a direction like that. God simply is. There is nothing to count out his days. What we perceive of as time is a part of what he created time space and matter all together relativity okay he is above his creation time is merely a result of God's desire to fellowship with his creatures that is where time comes from so imagine now our invisible eternal unchanging creator getting ready to paint his creation into existence there is no movement in him when he does this he is the unmoved mover there is no change in thought as it happens there's when he paints this silky white canvas it is an act of his very nature let it be is how the bible describes it let there be light let there be a firmament etc these words come from a concept the concept does not come from the words let there be, let there be. How did God create, and what is His current situation in respect to the creation? There are three, three possibilities on how He did it. The first is ex deo, or out of God. He create out of God. The second is a little more difficult, ex morphine coolis, which means out of shapeless, unformed, pre-existent matter. And the third possibility, and there are only three possibilities, would be ex. Nihilo, which means out of nothing. Only one is possible, and the only one possible is the one, believe it or not, presented in the Bible. Ex deo, or out of God, is what pantheism believes. But if everything is God, then time always existed, because matter always existed in God. But we've already seen that time going back infinitely in infinite regress is wrong. Ex deo is not what happened? The second possibility, ex morphine hullus, or out of shapeless, unformed, pre-existent matter, is what panentheism necessitates. As with pantheism, you have the problem of an infinite regress. If matter always existed and time is linked to matter, then time always existed. But this, again, was put to rest with Einstein and general relativity. Creation ex morphine hullus didn't happen. The only possible explanation for us, Kelly over there coughing, you enjoying the sand under your feet, us sitting here at Turtle Beach and listening to the wind blow through these trees is creation ex nihilo, or out of nothing. And the Bible bears this out several times and it does it in very specific verses. It says God doesn't change. It says God is eternal. God is spirit, etc. And it even tells us how God did it. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. God simply spoke. The universe into existence now God doesn't have a mouth there's no parts in God so the psalmist used a metaphor to explain creation via the word or the logos which is Jesus Christ the word of God in his infinite wisdom and from his very nature he created something from nothing now understanding this we need to consider something more about the God above creation does God still work actively in the universe? Or did he create his work and finish? Deism is a theistic approach to God. One God which holds to a creator that initiated everything and then left on vacation. How many of you heard that our founding fathers were all a bunch of deists? Anybody heard that? I've heard it so yeah, I've heard it so many times. Do you know how many deists there were in our founding fathers? There wasn't even one. Benjamin Franklin is the greatest candidate of all. Guess what he did? He prayed. Can't pray to a God that isn't there, okay? None of them were deists. They were all Christians, every single one of them. Here you go. God to a deist is like a watchmaker who wound up his watch and then he departed. However, the the universe is a dependent or a contingent system. We already covered that in the first principles. Because the universe came from nothing, it could in an instant return to nothing. God right now is holding the universe together by the power of his word. So when you go around taking the Lord's name in vain, he could just simply pop you out of existence and everything else, he could just be done with it and start all over again. That is how important it is to understand the God above creation. Because the universe is a dependent system, it always needs an independent being on which for it to be sustained a sustainer so let's suppose that the universe was created and then didn't need to be sustained which is impossible but what would be the result the result would be that the universe would then become a necessary being the universe would become God which is an impossibility based on point number eight of the first principles because it is not necessary the universe then it is contingent and because the universe is contingent, it cannot support itself. As I said, if God didn't actively sustain all of this right now, poof, it would be gone. Deism is incorrect. And the Bible specifically bears this out in several verses. It does it in Colossians. It does it in Hebrews. It does it in John. It does it elsewhere. Here's the one from Colossians. For by him, Jesus Christ, were all things created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. That is the God of creation. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That is the God above creation. And then we can go to the book of Hebrews and we can read this. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, the God of creation, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, that is the God above creation. Both of these verses support what we can know without even having a Bible in our hand, never hearing a verse from the Bible. And Jesus made exactly the same claim when he spoke to the people in the book of John. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. The God above creation is before and the sustainer of creation. That vast blank tapestry was filled with the thoughts of his infinitely intelligent mind through his word he created all things and by his word he sustains all things you got a little spider in its web and you've got the great sea creatures out there all of them came from the same unlimited source of power you've got red giant stars that are so big they make our sun look like a ping pong ball and we have protons swirling around atoms to him they are the same to us they're immensely large or they're infinitely small but to him they are just the same they're equally known and they are equally understandable it is no more effort for God to create a dandelion than it is for him to create a galaxy full of billions and billions and billions of stars that is the God above creation and then we come to point number three which is the God in creation the God of creation is eternal and unchanging The god above creation is unlimited in intelligence in power and in place and the god in creation is present he is active and he is caring he is committed to his creation and directs it for his purposes these purposes have one ultimate goal and that is to bring him the glory that he deserves when he spoke through the prophet Isaiah, he proclaimed this to his very creatures. He said, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory I will not give to another. He is the God in creation, but he is not the God as creation. How is God in and yet above his creation? He is like a painter that is making a painting. He's separate and distinct from it and yet he is active in the process. But he doesn't change in relation to his creation his creation changes in relation to him as he applies the brush strokes of his wisdom the creation is directed and it is formed into the beauty that he purposes for it when he acts upon his creation it occurs in time the time that he created and yet he is not subject to that time when he gets angry, for example, or he responds in punishment to her sins, it doesn't occur in the sequence that we are familiar with, all of us. We get angry and something happens. Like when I get angry, I first see an offense, and then I get angry, and then I respond to the offense. And all of this occurs in time, and it is a developing process. God doesn't work that way. His anger doesn't work that way. He doesn't watch a com- uh, an offense being committed and then get angry. He knew about the offense before it ever occurred. He doesn't then afterwards get angry at the offense. He was angry at the offense before it ever existed. And then he does not respond to the offense after it occurs. He responded before he ever created the universe. The tapestry was completely complete the moment it began. As Henry Bergson wisely said, what what a saying he said here, time is what keeps everything from happening all at once. Time is, you see, something made for you and something made for me. Were it not to be a part of the plan, then in the mind of God alone would exist the state of man. Oh, but he spoke and we came to be. Yes, God spoke and there was you and there was me. He made us with a special plan, his image bearer whom he called man. But we neglect him, yes we do. There's no God, there's just me and you. But when we get our thoughts just right and clarity returns to our sight, it's so plain and clear to see that God made you and God made me. The Bible shows us that everything we do, every move we make, every thought that we have is occurring right in the presence of God. It does this numerous times and it does it in very specific verses. When asked about the resurrection of people who had died 1,500 and even more years earlier, Jesus said this, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him, to God, every moment in time is present to him, from Adam and Genesis to the very last person that will be born in the book of Revelation, and everyone in between, they are all alive in his mind, right now he is right now viewing his tapestry of creation and Paul reminded the Athenians of this when he went and spoke at the Areopagus in Athens Greece in Acts chapter 17 he never introduced the Bible in the entire speech at the Areopagus he simply brought up one thing about the Bible in the very last sentence Here's what he said, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And that brings us to point number four today, the personal God. Hector Berliot said this, time is a great teacher, but unfortunately it kills all of its pupils. We've seen the God of creation, we've seen the God above creation, and we've seen the God in but not as creation. Because of what he is like, we know, we can know absolutely certainly without a Bible that monotheism is true and that all other religions by default are false. But can we finally define which form of monotheism is the only one that is accurately portrayed we are left with three possibilities judaism islam and christianity that's it if one of those isn't true then we have no idea about the god of creation nothing the answer is yes though we can know that one of these accurately reflects the nature of god judaism And Islam teach that God is a monad. And I'm talking about rabbinic Judaism. I'm not talking about biblical Judaism, which I call uncompleted Christianity. Biblical Judaism leads naturally to Christianity. But rabbinic Judaism, based on the Talmud and the rabbinic writings and Islam, both teach that God is a monad. There is no Godhead, all right? If God is a monad, a single unit then we would not exist. Do you remember, at the very beginning of this talk, I said, pay attention to the 12th principle because that is, as far as I'm concerned about, as important of anything that you can process in your mind. If you get that right, then you will understand what I'm saying here. The 12th first principle says, it's the principle of analogy. It says, necessary being is similar to the contingent beings that it causes. This principle, clearly sets aside rabbinic Judaism and it sets aside Islam as possibilities concerning the nature of God. The question that you have to ask yourself is, how could a being that does not understand fellowship create anything beyond himself that contains fellowship? He would be completely contained within himself. But because of the fact that we are social beings, God must also have social qualities such as the Trinity. Before I go on, this comes to mind right now. Genesis 1 says, let us make man in our image. In Isaiah 6, it says, who will go, who shall we send, and who will go for us? Even in the Old Testament, we have a concept. Even though it's not defined yet, we know this from the Bible. God is the painter, both above and of his creation, but he is also imminent in his creation. He is actively working in his creation without being changed by it. He is reflected in the things that he has created. The wisdom of the ant reflects the wisdom of the creator. The intelligence of the periodic table demonstrates his intelligence. The brilliance of mathematics demonstrates the brilliance of the mathematician who developed it. The spirals of a seashell and the spirals of a galaxy both reflect the Fibonacci series, which demonstrates the orderly thinking of the great architect. Beyond these reflections of himself, though, there are several personal ways that God is related to his creation. The first is through his prophetic word, which he breathed out and uttered by men of God. So instilled in them is a quality which is there to speak out his intentions to the people of the world. His messages through these people will tell his very heart. I love my creatures. I am angry at sin. I am merciful. I am just. I am righteous. I am holy. I am full of grace. I embody truth. His personal messages reflect his personal nature they also reflect his infinite worth. As the Bible says, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the heavens. If God were a monad, there would be no need to praise him, nor would there be any understanding of that praise. To his self-contained existence, praise would have no meaning. But through his prophets, praise is directed back to him which reflects his social nature. His own words reveal his worth. I am here and I am infinitely glorious, for example. I have created you to acknowledge that fact. He is also the personal God through his written word, not just the prophets, but through the written word. The second question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Not only did the prophets speak his word, but they and other men recorded it. They compiled it, they aligned it, they divided it into chapters and then into verses. They translated it and they published it, all at his direction. His word is more though than just a technical manual about himself. It is a reflection of who he is and his intent for us, for his creatures. It is the definitive explanation about how he has done things, what he expects from us and the timeline on which he is accomplishing his purposes. It is his mind, it is his heart and it is his will for the people in a language and in a form that we can grasp and that we can understand. And there is one more way that he is the personal God. When he united with his creation, this is the Christmas story. This is the Feast of Trumpets. It's the story of infinite love being displayed in a finite setting. And it is the loudest cry of emotion in the entire universe. The voice of Jesus echoes between the finite creation and the infinite creator. His cries to toss To still the tossing waves demonstrated his control over the physical world. He said, peace, be still. His cries to the hurting and to the sick show his control over corruptible flesh. When he said, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And then his cries at the grave of a friend demonstrated his control over death. Lazarus, come forth. And his cries on the cross reflect his infinite love of man and his triumph over satan for that man when he said it is finished he cried and the world was healed and the painting that we could not comprehend suddenly came into absolute clarity and perfect focus remember hector Berliatz she said time kills all of its pupils jesus transcends time death is swallowed up in victory by the love of god in the person of jesus christ and he calls out to each one of you in your own time of despair he says do not be afraid i am the first and i am the last i am he who lives and was dead and behold i am alive forevermore amen and i have the keys of death and of hades tom stoppard said eternity is a terrible thing i mean where is it going to end As sure as God made little red raspberries, eternity will continue on forever, but it will be vastly different than things are now. Jesus Christ has opened up a new avenue for the people of the world if they are simply willing to call on him. No more backaches, no more divorces, no more painful loss through death. Instead, he promises each and every person a eternity of joy and of blessing but he leaves the choice up to each and every one of us. So we can continue down the path that we are on to eventual destruction and separation from this creator who spoke us into existence, or we can be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ by the blessing of Christmas, the gift of God. He is our personal God. As Wayne Watson said, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air are silent to call out your name. The earth has no voice. And I have no choice but to magnify God unashamed. Let the rocks be kept silent for one more day. Let the whole world sing out and let the people say, Almighty, most holy God, faithful through the ages. Glorious, almighty God. Heavenly Father, if there is anybody here that came here with any doubts about your nature, about being the God of creation or the God above creation, or the God in creation, or the personal God, I hope that they will be willing to come forward and ask and hear the truth of Jesus Christ and to call on him and to be saved from the wrath which is coming. Lord God, I pray that every person here does know you personally, but if they don't, impress on their hearts that they should come and speak and find out about this wonderful Savior who stepped out of eternity and united with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us. In all things, may you be praised. Amen.